Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley, that this spring will offer special volunteer vacations designed for visitors to spend a day doing a stewardship project and another day heading out to the Tillamook Coast on adventure. It's free and a way to have fun and give back, and we'll have more details on this experience just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department invites Oregonians to explore parks during winter and spring to experience the beauty of those seasons. If you're camping, remember to buy firewood from the park or nearby community to avoid bringing invasive species, such as the devastating emerald ash borer, into parks. Learn more about protecting Oregon's ash trees at stateparks.oregon.gov. All right, in today's episode, we are going to talk about some big Oregon outdoors news, including the elimination of a controversial permit system before going snowy waterfall hunting in Oregon's mountains. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. So for our second straight episode, we are going to have a mixed bag of news stories in the first half and some fun adventures in the second half. In the first part of this podcast, we are once again going to dive into a handful of stories that are relevant for anybody that enjoys Oregon's outdoors. If you're wondering why so much news lately, this is just a busy time of year for me because the state legislature is in session And there's a lot of bills, a lot of ideas, and a lot of information comes out that I have to report on. That is the main part of my job. This podcast, I love it. I'm committed to it. But reporting on on news is is really my first job. So I'm doing a lot of that. And, you know, so if it seems like the podcast has turned a little newsy, it's just because that's what I've been doing. But don't worry, because in the second half of this podcast, we've got a great breakdown of the best places to snowshoe ski, or just hike to snow-covered waterfalls. It's something that I started calling winter waterfall hunting about 13 or 14 years ago, and it continues to be one of my favorite outdoor experiences. And the timing is good because, as we'll discuss, we're expecting some pretty cold and snowy weather over this coming week and into the end of February, so it'll be prime conditions for snowy waterfalls. Okay, well, let's get to the news first. All right, well, to start out, the news that grabbed most people's attention last week was that a controversial permit system in the Columbia River Gorge will not return this coming summer. So the system in question was known as the Timed Entry Permit System, and it applied to the Columbia Gorge's so-called Waterfall Corridor. So that's the area that's going to be around Multnomah, Joaquina, Horsetail Falls, among a bunch of others. 
is known as the Waterfall Corridor for a good reason, because yes, there are a lot of waterfalls. But last year, for the first time, if you wanted to drive into the Waterfall Corridor on the gorgeous historic highway, you had to log on to recreation.gov and buy a $2 permit for a specific time. So you'd get a permit for a an hour, like 10 to 11 a.m., and you had to drive through the blockades on the road at that time, show them your permit, and they'd wave you through. And the goal here, like all of Oregon's permit systems lately, was to reduce the crowds and congestion by simply limiting the number of people who could enter via those permits. And it's a fair concern because if you've ever been stuck in the line of traffic around Multnomah Falls on that historic highway during summer, it's it sucks. It's chaos. There's people stopping their cars, taking pictures. There's people walking across and then just a line of cars as far as you can see. It's pretty bad. And in fairness, the permit system did help with that congestion. The problem was the system was expensive to administer and it was confusing. So it cost about $1 million to run the permit system last summer. And for the people that showed up out of state, especially, and that's going to be tens of thousands of tourists who wanted to head out to Multnomah Falls, you know, Oregon's most famous waterfall. You know, a lot of them had no clue about the permit. They'd show up and get frustrated. They'd buy the wrong one. So that part was pretty messy. So instead of that permit system this year, Oregon officials are planning to just put a flagger or, you know, a traffic control person out in front of Multnomah Falls. So the idea is that they will just keep the cars moving. If somebody tries to park or take a picture or whatever, they're just going to kind of move them along. You know, you can't park here. You got to keep moving. And they think by doing that, they'll just eliminate the biggest problem on that highway without the permit system. Now, they didn't rule out returning to the permit system at some point, but you know, you got to really commit to it. You got to have it funded. You got to administer it. It's a lot of work to actually put in and maintain that sort of permit system. So I think they're hoping that they can just make this smaller tweak and it'll have, you know, close to the same effect. Now, although that permit for the historic highway uh, and the waterfall corridor won't return, uh, the permit required to park in Multnomah Falls I-84 parking lot will return. So if you want to head to that giant parking lot that's right on the side of I-84 during the summer, you're going to have to get a permit for that. And it's, you know, the same way. And the reason for that one, and this is a pretty good reason, is that at one point, like cars were like getting backed up out onto the interstates. And that is powerfully dangerous. So they wanted to get rid of that. They've had this permit in place actually for three or four years or something like that. So What's happening basically this year is we're just pretending like last summer never happened and we're returning to what it was like just the year before that. All right, well, up next, we are going to touch on Oregon's weather and climate, both now and looking forward. Now, as you probably noticed, winter returned to Oregon this week, bringing a little bit of Willamette Valley snow and then dumping another 14 to 18 to 20 inches at the Cascade Range passes and ski levels. And it was a good thing, too, because this winter it got off to a great start, but has been really dry since then. We'd actually drop below normal snowpack levels in the mountains. As for where we stand right now, Oregon's snowpack did get bumped up and is a little bit higher than normal. Officially, our state snowpack is 108% of normal, so that's just a tick above normal. 
So when you look at the ski areas, Mount Hood Meadows has 100 inches. Hoodoo has 70 inches, which is right about where they should be for this time of year. The good news is that it looks like winter recreation season is going to stick around for quite a while this year. And, and that's because the next two weeks are projected to be colder and wetter than normal. Um, we're expecting another nice dump of mountain snow and maybe even, you know, the chance for some valley snow again. The long-term forecast for the rest of February and into March is strongly favoring cool and wet conditions. So hang on for a little bit more winter before we start thinking about spring. All right, up next, we got the end of year numbers for recreation visits across the state. And by all the calculations we look at, this was the second busiest season in Oregon's outdoors on record. So if you were out and about, you probably noticed sold out campgrounds and busy trailheads everywhere from central Oregon to the Oregon coast, but it was down just a touch from 2021. That was like number one with a bullet, the top most busy year on record. So as far as numbers go, Oregon State Park System recorded 52.2 million day visits and 2.97 million camper nights last year. So that's the second highest that they've recorded in the agency's 100-year history. The numbers were down just slightly from last year, uh, which recorded more visits. And I heard basically the same thing on Oregon's vast federal lands and state lands. The numbers were high, very high, but still down just a touch from last year's record-breaking numbers. I was told that the shoulder seasons and winter, so the off seasons, have continued to be increasingly popular. So there's more people going out in early spring or late autumn or the dead of winter than there used to be. There's just way more people in those seasons. But summer has gotten so packed that there's almost like people are like, oh, geez, you know, <laughs> it's 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 too crazy out there even for me. So I'm going to find something else to do. There's always some fun stuff to play around with when I get these numbers uh, that measure visitation. Uh, so, for example, can you take a moment and guess what the busiest campground in Oregon is? So what do you think? The coast or central Oregon? Like, what do you think the single busiest campground in Oregon? Okay, so here's the answer. At number one, and this has been true pretty much every year since I've started tracking this, at number one, we've got Fort Stevens State Park near Astoria. That is definitely the biggest campground in Oregon. It brings in by far the most people, and it was tops with 319,000 camper nights. So that's a lot of people. It's almost like a small city out there. So in second place, uh, the second busiest campground in Oregon is South Beach State Park outside of Newport. In third is Nehalem Bay State Park, and then Honeyman State Park, and then Beverly Beach in fifth. If you notice, these are all on the Oregon coast. In fact, of the 10 busiest campgrounds in Oregon, eight are on the coast. The busiest campgrounds not on the coast were Shampooey State Park, just north of Salem. And fun fact, that's actually a place where Oregon's provisional government was first formed. That's why there's a park there. And that's going to be followed by Detroit Lake State Park, east of Salem, and then Valley of the Rogue in southern Oregon. So those are the, the campgrounds not on the coast that are the most popular. Now, one other thing that is fun to do is not just to pick out the busiest, most popular campgrounds in Oregon, but also to pick out the least visited. So the camp place you can camp in Oregon that had the fewest number of people this year was 
is Willamette Mission State Park, which actually is a really cool place just north of Salem now, <laughs> believe it or not. One of my first outdoor features that I ever wrote um, for the Statesman Journal was about Willamette Mission State Park. It's worth a visit. It's got beautiful bike trails. It's got some you know nice places to paddle. You can fish there. They've got the largest what is it? Black cottonwood tree in Oregon. So there's a lot going on at Willamette Mission State Park. It's worth visiting. I don't know very many people that go there to camp and the numbers bear that out. There was 1,666 camper nights at Willamette Mission. Now, you know, we're having fun with this and, you know, I, I like to track the numbers and kind of see what they, they tell you about Oregon's recreation season. But there was a big downside to the crowds that we reported on a lot this year. And that we've mentioned on this podcast. And that is, along with more people being outdoors, people were also a lot angrier outdoors. And the number of assaults and attacks on park rangers specifically has gone up with those crowd numbers. It got bad enough that a response was needed. And that response has come in the form of a new bill that was introduced to the state legislature this session. So Oregon House Bill 2011 proposes to increase penalties for assaulting parks and recreation employees. It would increase that penalty to a maximum of five years imprisonment, $125,000 fine, or both. So basically, they're saying, if you go after a ranger, the penalty would be worse than it was previously. Now, whether that'll make a difference or not, you know, in those heat of the moment arguments that can turn violent, who knows? But we've reported on a lot of troubling and frankly pathetic behavior from visitors. Hopefully this makes a small bit of difference. Okay, up next is a story that is fairly complicated but is critical for everybody that loves outdoor recreation in Oregon. So this story involves a Supreme Court decision liability waivers, skyrocketing insurance for outfitters, and Senate Bill 754, which had its first hearing on Wednesday, and generally the risk of the outdoors versus the duty of businesses to keep you safe. So stay with me on this one. It's important. I think the place to start here is that a big problem that's emerged over the past few years is skyrocketing insurance costs for places like ski areas, rafting outfitters, and generally businesses that rent or guide outdoor recreation in Oregon. These are important businesses. They're the ones that give us the equipment to go out and play. They're the ones that ensure we make it safely down the river. This is important stuff. It's part of a huge recreation economy in Oregon. However, insurance that covers these kind of activities, which you need, is now harder to get than ever, and it's more expensive than ever. And that matters because if the insurance is more expensive for businesses like Next Adventure in Portland or Diamond Lake Resort in Southern Oregon, the price gets passed along to us. So now that boat you want to rent costs $100 instead of $70. Now guided snowmobile or mountain bike trips are no longer available. So it kind of becomes this death by a million cuts situation. So that's the problem. But why is it happening in Oregon and not elsewhere in the West? Well, the answer to that is a little long and winding, but it goes back to a snowboarding accident at Mount Bachelor ski area. So in 2006, an 18-year-old named Miles Bagley was riding there. So he went off an expert level jump at the terrain park and was paralyzed in a fall. Now he sued Mount Bachelor, basically saying their jumps were badly constructed and dangerous, and they were at fault or negligent for the accident. 
Now, when he brought this lawsuit forward, the two lower courts, so the Court of Appeals and the Deschutes County Circuit Court, dismissed his case because he had signed a liability waiver inherent in his season pass. So he'd signed this liability waiver. You know, that agreement, I'm sure you've all signed them in the past that says you're accepting the risk of this activity and essentially you can't sue them. Now, his lawyers made the argument that that waiver was in an unconscionable contract. And in 2014, the Supreme Court agreed, saying that because there was no negotiation with liability waivers, that it was a take it or leave it deal, that it was not legal under Oregon's constitution. And when they did that, they basically eliminated the legal power of liability waivers in Oregon. Now, everybody knew it was kind of a big deal in the moment, but the issue sort of simmered over the next few years. Like there wasn't immediately major or obvious changes. But then things kind of exploded last year when a mountain biker named Gabriel Owens was paralyzed after riding extreme mountain biking trails at Mount Hood Ski Bowl. So he, like Bagley, made the argument that the trail was so badly constructed that Ski Bowl was at fault for the accident. So the fact that the liability waivers had been weakened by that Supreme Court decision meant that the case could go forward. It didn't have that stopgap and it went to trial and a Multnomah County jury actually awarded Owens $11.8 million. And that was the moment when things started to really go haywire. And you saw it almost immediately with uh, Mount Hood Ski Bowl deciding to shut down their mountain biking trails for the summer. It was a pretty big story and people were kind of like, okay, well, this thing we've known has been simmering for a while. It's really really happening. And the reason is that brings us back to the insurance issue, because it's not Mount Hood Ski Bowl that's paying Mr. Owens. It's their insurance company. And insurance companies, as a rule, do not like paying out multi-million dollar settlements. So they've started to take a hard look at Oregon's legal landscape, and they see a lot of risk there for recreation providers. Now, these insurance companies have seen a growing number of lawsuits that have been brought against recreation providers and thought, hey, that's not what we're looking for. We don't want to deal with that. And so they've scaled back what they offer in terms of insurance and they've increased the price. And that's not good for anybody. So all of that is kind of the setup for Senate Bill 754, which uh, again had its first hearing uh, this past week. And the bill would basically reverse the Supreme Court decision and reapply the legal power of liability waivers. It was pretty interesting reading the coverage of this issue and looking at who's pushing for it because most people are supporting the bill. You know, nobody wants high recreation prices or to kneecap this critical and beloved outdoor recreation economy. So there's a lot of support for this bill. But there is another side too. You know, both Bagley and Owens were paralyzed. And if you look closely at the cases, they didn't like fall down or run into a tree. It wasn't them being stupid. They presented very real and compelling cases that Skee-Bull and Bachelor screwed up. And this is different than like being out in a wilderness trail or on the national forest on public land. There, there's no expectation that things are going to be made safe for you. But when you pay money and you go to a ski area, there is a certain expectation that they are at least going to be thinking about their jumps and stuff. And if they don't, you know, that's a screw up. That's negligence. And that's, you know, the case that Bagley and Owens made. And if the liability waivers had held up in those cases, those two young men would not only be paralyzed, they'd also be broken, probably bankrupt by medical bills. The groups opposing this bill make the case that restoring this liability shield hurts victims, or at a minimum, it hurts their ability to get compensated when they have very real injuries. 
So while yes, nobody wants recreation businesses to struggle or go away or ski areas to jack up prices, this isn't a straightforward issue. We'll see how this bill progresses through the state legislature. Okay, so here's a quick speed round to finish off our newsy segment. Uh, First off, I did a pretty deep dive about cashless modes of payment that are increasingly taking over on public lands. I actually wrote the story because I kept going to trailheads that required like that $5 payment, but there was actually no way to pay the fee. The problem is that widespread theft and of the little fee tubes has gotten so bad that they've just been removed in a whole bunch of remote places. And look, a lot of people don't even carry cash anymore. So going to cashless does make sense. It saves money that could be better spent elsewhere. It saves staff time. But in doing that, land agencies effectively disenfranchise a lot of populations like the elderly, uh, minority populations that are much less likely to have a credit card, a debit card, or to be able to make payments online. So read that story if you're interested in that topic and, you know, keep a lookout as to how the situation evolves. Okay, up next in the speed round, the the Center for Biological Diversity filed a petition this week to protect southern resident orcas, which are also known as killer whales, under the Oregon Endangered Species Act. As of the most recent count, just 73 southern resident orcas remain, divided among three family groups off the Oregon coast. Now, the plight of orcas has been taken up mainly in Washington's Puget Sound area, but in this case, the center wants to bring that attention to Oregon officials. Okay, I'm going to mention two other pieces of legislation that caught my attention. So House Bill 2191 and its companion Senate Bill 679 would provide $1 million of general fund dollars uh, for the Oregon Coast Trail. So this would be for new funding to continue development of the trail. As I reported a few years ago, the Oregon Coast Trail is an increasingly popular and excellent place. It's bringing people from around the world to hike, you know, the 300 plus miles of the Coast Trail from California to Washington. And the problem is that if you've hiked it, there are a whole bunch of major gaps in the trail where you have to go off of the trail and you have to hike along the side of Highway 101, which really takes away from that immersive experience. Now, if you're interested in the Oregon Coast Trail, we did a couple of episodes on how to through hike and segment hike it. So so just look at our archives for that. But in this case, you know, a million dollars would go towards helping move that process along of reconnecting the trail. Finally, House Bill 2737 would allow state agencies to transfer properties to federally recognized Indian tribes in Oregon. So this bill allows for the transfer, sale, lease, exchange, or donation of property from Oregon state agencies to nine federally recognized tribes. So keep an eye out for that one. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we're headed out to ski or snowshoe to Oregon's best snowy waterfalls. So stick with us for that. I'm Sarah Melton with the American Forest Resource Council. I love the outdoors and exploring the forests near my hometown. My job is to protect our forests and wildlife. I work to defend forest management projects in the courtroom 
and to support the workers and agencies who steward our forests and public lands. Good forest management based on the best science keeps our forests healthy, improves wildlife habitat, keeps our air and water clean, and gives us the sustainable timber we need for renewable and climate-friendly wood products. AFRC is proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more about us at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. Beginning in the spring of 2023, the Tillamook Coast Visitors Association is excited to announce a volunteer vacation program that will bring groups from inside or outside Tillamook County to lend a hand in stewardship programs while also having a good time. One example of an itinerary would be spending one day clearing invasive brush or working on a hiking trail, while the next day could include a guided hike or kayak trip the type of activity that highlights the Tillamook area and shows why doing stewardship projects is so important. All meals and transportation are included for the groups that take part, which will ideally be between 8 and 12 people. The experience is free for those who take part. The program is designed to offer participants the opportunity to give back to our popular area, while also learning the vital role stewardship plays in preserving our natural places. The program website will launch in March, so stay tuned for that. But if you want more information or to sign up early, contact Dan Hag, and you can reach him at dan at tillamacoast, all one word, dot com. All right, welcome back. Well, as I mentioned in the newsy part of the podcast, we've got some wonderful low elevation snow headed our way which means that it's prime season for winter waterfall hunting. Now, this is a sport I kind of jokingly invented about 14 years ago. And the idea was to find adventurous ways to travel to waterfalls covered in snow and ice, because look, it's just such a refreshing, glorious feeling to come across that waterfall that you've seen maybe before, but now it's covered in snow and ice. It just looks cooler. It's a cool experience. And it adds a lot more adventure because you have to kind of figure out how to get there on, you know, usually there's there's a trail that's been covered up by snow. Uh, there's a lot going on there. So you got to use snowshoes, maybe skis in some cases, and you can go back and try to bag them. So here's a part of an old podcast that we did three years ago, maybe more, uh, where my former co-host David Davis and I picked out our favorite snowy waterfall trips and how to get to them. So hopefully you enjoy that and get some good ideas for the rest of February and early March. All right. Well, we are going to start off with a waterfall in the southern half of the state, Watson Falls. It's located in the North Umpqua Canyon between Roseburg and Diamond Lake, right off Highway 138. At 272 feet, Watson is one of the tallest waterfalls in Oregon and also pretty easy to reach on a one-mile hike right off the highway. Yeah, you're going to need a nice low elevation snow because Watson sits at around 3,100 feet and doesn't get as much snow as some of the others we'll talk about. But it does happen a few times each winter, and the good news is you can really make a pretty good trip out of it. The North Umpqua Canyon is packed with waterfalls right off Highway 138. 
Why should we start off with Watson? I had to go with Watson first because it was actually the place that inspired this idea of seeking out waterfalls in the snow. So years ago, some friends were visiting Crater Lake National Park when, as often happens, a winter storm rolled in and you couldn't see the lake anymore. Which is a bummer because they'd come a long way to see it. So I had to come up with a backup plan and decided to pick uh, Watson Falls. So drove out there on Highway 138, snowing pretty hard at the time. So we just parked on the side of the highway, headed out to the trail. And so we're heading up the trail and then all of a sudden Watson Falls just appears through the, the snow and mist. It's this giant frozen rope of a waterfall just surrounded by white trees. It was a magical moment, but it also illustrates one thing I like about winter waterfalls, and that's on these snowy overcast days with limited visibility where you can't see mountains or lakes, the waterfalls are always there. You don't need that perfect bluebird day. In fact, it's more fun to find the waterfalls when it's like blowing snow sideways. Okay, for the next one, we're going to ramp up the challenge a little bit. Yeah, up next we've got Proxy Falls, which is east of Eugene in the Three Sisters Wilderness. Now, another common theme with winter waterfalls is that they start out as a popular summer hiking trail that becomes a lot more of an adventure in the winter. That is definitely true at Proxy. Yeah, the twist with Proxy Falls is that while it's located right off McKenzie Pass Highway 242, that stretch of the highway is closed and not plowed during winter. So you have to park at the winter gate down below and follow the snow-covered highway for 2.6 miles just to reach the summer trailhead. Then it requires some work to kind of navigate the trails to eventually find the waterfalls in the snow. Yeah, Proxy is an adventure for sure, but keep in mind we're talking about two of Oregon's most scenic and most photographed waterfalls in Upper and Lower Proxy Falls. In the snow, they really are stunners. One of my favorite pictures of all time was Upper Proxy Falls. If you've ever been there, you can kind of visualize it, the ethereal like waterfall kind of rolling down the basalt. But in the winter, you can get real close to it, and there'll be giant icicles up there. And so you have a combination of snow, icicles, like a little bit of water dripping down, even a little green in the background. And all of that taken together creates just this dynamic scene. And that's, uh, that's an upside of winter waterfalls. They're really good for photographers. Like, it's just... It, offers something new and different and kind of messes with people's like expectations. So given the distance and terrain, how would you choose your weapon? Snowshoes or skis? Skis obviously make a little more sense when you're going faster on the smooth highway, but then they'd be a little tough once they get to the actual trail. This is one of the toughest choices that I faced on the proxy trip because seven miles is a fairly long way, especially when you're, you're breaking trail. You know, I would have loved to ski, but snowshoes are definitely what you'll need once you get onto the official trail. Like, I suppose you could ski up there, stash them, and put on snowshoes if you want to carry all that. Don't think there's a perfect answer. Yeah, another thing to keep in mind is that you're going to run into kind of some variable sort of snowfall. Proxy Falls sits at 3,300 feet, which gets, you know, a decent amount of snow. But then at the gate, which is actually quite low down the highway at 2,100 feet, you might encounter not really much snow at all. Yeah, for sure. There's times when you'll start out on bare ground and then like just gradually like pick up snow because between 
you know, 2,000 and 3,300 feet, like there's just a wide variation. That's like right in that prime spot where it could be rain or could be snow. So one of the issues with that is that you'll often get this really heavy snow. And actually on my trip, I sort of hurt my knee because the first few miles, the snow was so wet and heavy that it was like cement and it would attach to my snowshoe and like way down every step. And that's the hazard you get with winter waterfall hunting because a lot of these waterfalls, again, sit at these mid elevations and you have this snow that's just, you know, it's not powdery soft. It's often very cement-like. All right, for our next waterfall, we're going to change it up and head over the mountain to what might be one of the most famous winter waterfalls or at least one of the most commonly visited. Yeah, up next we are going to talk about Tumalo Falls, which is just outside of Bend. Now, a lot of the winter waterfalls we're talking about here are kind of hidden away in the winter, like in hibernation, so to speak. Tumalo Falls, that is not the case. It gets a ton of visitors from Central Oregon's winter recreation crowds. One of the reasons I like it is that it's a little higher in elevation, almost around 5,000 feet, typically has better snow conditions. It's also a really good one to cross-country ski to, since we've been a little heavy on snowshoes so far. For those that haven't done this trip, it's just west of Bend. Basically, you drive from the city down Skyliners Road until you hit a winter gate. You find a parking spot and start skiing down the road. Another option starts at Skyliners Snow Park, which has a little more parking where you can pick up kind of a more challenging trail into Tumalo Creek. Like anywhere out there, I'd start early. Uh, just to make sure you get a good parking spot. But I visited Bend with my parents a few years ago, and we just skied the road. You know, it's 2.5 miles one way, five miles round trip to reach Tumalo Falls. The road is pretty scenic, and it's got, you know, these kind of fun rolling hills that make it pretty fun to cross-country ski down. You know, you get to slide down and then, you know, climb your way up the next one. I'd say it's still easy enough for beginners. There's just a lot of space, good tracks. At the end of the road, you cross a little bridge, and then bam, right there, 89-foot Tumalo Falls. Tumalo Falls is one of those waterfalls it feels like everyone that visits Bend has probably seen. It's a place they often direct tourists to in the summer, but it is a cool waterfall, and the forest is a lot different than what we see on the west side. Very open, ponderosa forest, a lot more sunshine. Yeah, if you're a talented skier, and you've, uh, or if you've carried snowshoes, you can actually head above Tumalo Falls onto North Fork Trail, find a bunch more winter waterfalls. I haven't actually done that, but there are a bunch of them just upstream. Finally, if you're in Central Oregon and want more winter waterfall action, there are more great ski and waterfalls at Paulina Creek Falls at the Newberry National Volcanic Monument, South of Bend. You park at 10 Mile Snow Park, and then begin a seven-mile trip to the two winter waterfalls. Okay, welcome back. Up next, we're going to detail another four winter waterfalls, including our picks for the best overall trip to a frozen falls. Let's get started with a place that is famous not only for waterfalls, but for also being in the iconic Hollywood blockbuster Homeward Bound, the 1990 story of some talking pets that become lost and then make this wild attempt to make their way home. <laughs> Don't ever make jokes about Homeward Bound. You're messing with my childhood It's, it's there. pretty near and dear to both of us. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> All right, so the place we are talking about here is Sahaley and Coosa Falls, two very well-known 100-foot waterfalls on the upper Mackenzie River. It's just south of Sanium Junction near Clear Lake. The route makes use of a pretty popular segment of the Mackenzie River Trail, which, again, this is one of those waterfalls that's very popular in summer and gets more of an adventure in the winter. There's kind of two ways to do this trip. Once you find a parking spot along Highway 126, it's easy to pop in for a quick view of Sahaley Falls, maybe walk down to Coosa Falls, 
Even in the snow, there's usually an established snowshoe path, but there's a more adventurous trek. Yeah, the more challenging route is three miles, and it loops past both waterfalls twice, actually. So you cross a bridge onto the Mackenzie River Trail, which feels a lot more remote in the deep snow on the other side of the creek. So you follow that route, past the waterfalls a few more times, and then you come back on Carmen Reservoir Road to complete this loop. It follows a summer route, but it feels a lot different, and it can be challenging if you're breaking trail. There's no blue diamonds to follow. It can be steep. Again, it's not maintained for winter travel, so, you know, there's a lot going on out there. All right, so we did this trip uh, together. So what what did you think? So like I said at the top, this really this experience kind of drove home how snow turns the whole experience on its head. You know, in the summer, it's a pretty easy meander. It's not too far from the parking lot. In the winter, the snow kind of changes the scale of things. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a little bit higher up. You have kind of a different vantage point. The snow kind of mutes some of the details, lanking the whole thing in white and kind of bringing the relief of sort of the terrain out more. Mm -hmm. So it was just, you know, it's kind of a different experience. One thing that doesn't change from the summer is that Sahalia and Kusa are just really powerful waterfalls. I mean, the Mackenzie doesn't freeze at all, and so they just blast with this power, but in the winter it changes, like there's, so there's ice everywhere. The other thing, I love the color of the Mackenzie in snow. I mean, it's, it's famous for being a super clear, pristine stream, but in the winter it sticks out because you can really catch these amazing turquoise, dark blue colors in the water as it's accented by that white canvas. So as we mentioned in our podcast on winter adventures in San Diego and Willamette Pass, we're kind of repeating ourselves here, but yes, Sahaley Falls was featured in Homeward Bound. It's actually the waterfall that Sassy the Cat gets launched off of in the movie. You can actually find this clip on YouTube. I was really happy when I saw that clip because it was, again, one of my favorite movies as a kid. And you can really tell in the movie that it is Sahaley Falls because it is such a distinctive shape. It's got that power at the top and kind of like fans out. Also from the clip, you can definitely tell that was not a real cat getting launched because no cat would survive that plummet 100%. You know what? Tell that to 10-year-old me because <laughs> I'm pretty sure I wore out a VHS copy or two. And you thought that Sassy survived for sure. Who knows? Who knows? All right. Getting back to the point, you mentioned that there are some challenges about this trip with parking. Yeah. So again... It's not an official winter route, which means there is not an official snow park or established parking spot. You're kind of taking your chances with a couple of different places. The first one is a small little place on the side of Highway 126, which is right near the normal Sahaley Falls viewpoint. Now, normally you can fit one to three cars in there, so you kind of want to get there early. That's usually where I end up parking. The second one is, again, kind of a dice roll because it's on Carmen Reservoir Road, and that's the one that connects the the loop together basically on the south end and the road is it's a forest service road but it's often plowed because uh, there's an electrical station down there but it's not always plowed and also if you do choose to do that to turn onto Carmen Reservoir Road make sure to park way on the side because there's going to be snow plows coming past and if you mess with them they might no longer let us use it so just be a good neighbor get out of the way and find a good place to park. Okay, so are we going with skis or snowshoes here? Definitely snowshoes. Uh, There's no established trail. You're going over steep terrain, and unless you're really good at backcountry skiing, I'm not going to recommend it. If I tried, you know, and I'm fine at backcountry skiing, I mean, I'm pretty sure I would slide into the river. Not sure if I'd die from cold or drowning first, but it would be one of the two. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more exposure here than some of the others. For sure. 
On this podcast is our solemn duty to declare a winner, usually. So in our next spot is the best of the best when it comes to winter waterfall hunting. Who's victorious here? Yes, indeed. The best of the best, the snowy waterfall that towers above all others, is Salt Creek and Diamond Creek Falls. This is an adventure that has everything you want. It's got good access, generally good snow conditions, a major adventure, and two of the most beautiful winter waterfalls you will ever find. The trip is located near Willamette Pass, southwest Eugene on Highway 58. It begins nicely enough at Salt Creek Snow Park. There are two different options, a pretty easy kid-friendly winter waterfall and a much bigger adventure. So there are two major waterfalls here. The easier one is to reach 289-foot Salt Creek Falls, which is often known as the second tallest waterfall in Oregon. Now, that is sometimes disputed in the very political world of Oregon waterfalls. But either way, this is a monster falls dropping into this huge, deep canyon, all covered with snow and ice. Just beautiful. But that's not it. There is a more challenging waterfall to reach, and that is Diamond Creek Falls. It's a 120-footer that's a lot deeper in the backcountry. It requires about a 4.5-mile route, sometimes a little sketchy downhill scramble if you want to reach the base of the waterfall, but there's a nice route too, so it's just two good worlds. So what are we using here, skis or snowshoes? Well, this is finally one where you could legitimately use both. The Diamond Falls Loop is rated more difficult for skiers, meaning there's some steepness, some exposure, but, you know, it is intended for good backcountry skiers. However, snowshoeing is definitely the easier and safer option, and if you want to take your chances of getting down to the base of Diamond Falls, which is not always recommended, you are going to need snowshoes for sure. Okay, so take us through this trip a little bit. Right, so again, you start at Salt Creek Snow Park, you turn off the highway, and as you drive down the entrance road, you hang a quick right uh, to an area that's been plowed out. And this is actually the access road that leads to Salt Creek Falls Viewpoint, which is a pretty popular place in the summer, normally filled with campers and trucks and cars. So you follow this snow-covered road to the parking lot of Salt Creek Falls, and that's about half a mile. So that's the good option for kids, right? Because it's a pretty flat hike through the snow to see, you know, the big Salt Creek Falls. It's about a mile round trip. Yeah, it's a good one for kids. And often there's, you know, a good path through the snow. In some cases, you don't even need snowshoes because there's such a good packed down path that you can just, you know, hike it in boots. So that's one mile total. And if you're a smart parent, you do that and then you head back to the car and drop down farther on the snow park road to a sledding hill. So between the snowy hike to a waterfall and the sledding, you're going to have some happily exhausted kids for sure. But for the bigger adventure, you take a different trail from Salt Creek Falls, right? Yep. So once you've admired Salt Creek Falls for a while, what you do is you follow the creek upstream to a really beautiful wooden bridge that spans the creek. It's often one of those really picturesque moments because snow is hanging off, but you got the stream rolling through. It's really cool. And that starts the Diamond Falls Loop, which takes you off into the backcountry and through the forest. I normally take the right loop. A little past the midway point, you'll have a tough choice. There is a sign for Lower Diamond Creek Falls, and in the summer, a trail goes down there. It's pretty steep. In the winter, that trip can be a lot more challenging because the snow piles up there. You kind of have to boot ski downhill. So the last time I was there, I just abandoned that trip. I didn't do it because I sunk in about chest deep into the powder. Probably good to know your limits at that point. Yeah, for sure. But there are times when the snow is more packed down. There's a good established trail. You still have to cross a really sketchy bridge um, that does not have a hand railing on it. So it's basically like a snow and ice tightrope 
which when you have snowshoes on can be a little challenging. And if you fall off, you are falling into a freezing cold rushing creek. Again, people do it for sure, you know, maybe in the springtime when there's a little bit less snow, but you're taking your chances down there. And the thing is, you don't have to. There's a perfectly fine viewpoint at the top on the main route where you get a really good view of Diamond Creek Falls. Perfectly fine to do it that way too. So you can be more adventurous if you want to, uh, or you could just (laughs) be a rational human and enjoy the viewpoint. So anything else to know about our top pick? Well, Salt Creek Falls is at 4,000 feet. Diamond Falls is a little higher. So the snow conditions are pretty good here year round. That's a big plus. Also, just up the road is Willamette Pass Ski Area and a lot of other snow parks. So it's close to a lot of other fun winter recreation trips. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.